Hi, my name is Lex Wharton and I listen to 3CR and I hope you do too. I hope that you could support 3CR in its radiothon because 3CR supports the fight for communities and support in all areas of struggles. So please listen to 3CR. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to Fill in the Dots, you know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, Fill in the Dots. 3CR Community Radio, you got it right, you've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 8.55am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. And welcome to The Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald. This week, we're switching on to those incredible monopoly rents uh, via the internet. And there's a, a rising concern surrounding the inequality between those who design web web platforms such as Google, Facebook and Uber and their users. And this has seen this growing movement questioning this disparity. We enliven the platform, so why do they make billions from our community? And uh, this week there was a very interesting conference called Platform Cooperativism. And uh, two of the keynote presenters are on this week's show in Janelle Orsi and Professor Anthony Schneider. So, uh, talking co-ops, let's give a little definition on what they are. They are founded on the principle of participatory governance. Co-ops are governed by those who use their services, their members. They are autonomous associations formed and democratically directed by people who come together to meet common economic, social and cultural needs. By the members for the members. All right, well, uh, let's get into today's a series of interviews. Knock, knock, fellow renegades. All right, we are in the foyer at the Acme Cinemas at Fed Square and uh, we're just uh, networking away following the platform cooperatives. Oh, God, everyone stuffed this name up and now I have too. The platform co-op uh, conference that's been held here today with uh, Janelle Orsi and Nathan Schneider and uh, Godfrey Mose who's from the National Union of Workers, is uh, here with us. He was a panellist at today's forum. So, Godfrey, what inspires you about co-ops? What inspires me about co-ops is that I believe that they are essentially the bricks uh, for a new economy, for a new economic structure. Uh, And they're kind of like, I guess, socialism made real in a way. That's not the government. It's not a big corporation that's distant from people. It's something that we can understand. It's workers working together on the job. And I really believe that a system based on cooperatives is a system that can be dynamic, but for the common interest, that we can have a country that is essentially a commonwealth and not what we've got today. 
And so the prime uh, differentiation between uh, companies and co-ops? Well, a corporation is just there to make as much profit for a shareholder, uh, whatever involvement they've had with the company, as they can, to the exclusion of all else, save whatever we the people fight for in terms of legal changes or workers on the job. Um, whereas a worker cooperative is a cooperative there that exists for the common good of the members of the cooperative. And so how we define membership and what the role of the cooperative is much more open to negotiation, to debate, much more open to fulfilling a, a holistic purpose and building a more robust, equal, prosperous economy. So you're looking out for your members who are your workers and their, their uh, rights and their ability to share in these profits. And so uh, with Mondragon and some of the examples coming in from around the world, it seems like there's a lot of efficiency gains that come from having a switched on workforce who have an incentive to provide immediate feedback and fix things. Well, there's an incredible productive power in democracy. Just the example that I talked about before, the Fleurio Poultry Association that we worked with to try and build up a workers' cooperative, we had one guy there, Rick. He stepped up from being a factory line worker, wasn't a union delegate, just a regular union member, to become from the factory floor to the project leader for this project. So there's a lot of untapped skills and potential that people have out there. And a lot of your listeners would feel that when they work every day, that they it's in their gut. You don't get listened to, you have suggestions, you have ideas, and I believe our economic salvation, our civilizational salvation, relies on pulling out that untapped potential that we've got to create something new and better. Yeah, well, we're seeing that so often uh, online with uh, little little elements that are happening around in terms of the online commons. Uh, Wikipedia is certainly a prominent one, and then there's Flickr. Uh, what's some of the uh, online examples you really uh, point to when people are trying to see real-life examples of something they mightn't be aware has a co-op backing to it? Well, one of the things that I like to point out uh, is... For my day-to-day, -day, one's an online example and one's not. But I guess Wikipedia is the most prevalent example that people have out there. It's put the entire encyclopedia industry out of business. Um, but a lot of, what a lot of people don't realise is that, say, the Devondale cheese that you might get in the supermarket, that's a farmer cooperative. There's a lot of hidden cooperatives in our system. Uh, most of our union members are part of a superannuation fund by the name of Lucruf. It stands for the Labor Union Cooperative Retirement Fund. They're just, it's like the matrix. Once you look for cooperatives, you see them everywhere. Good. Well, that's what we want is alternatives. And as uh, we heard, there's probably some 200,000 jobs about to be wiped out of uh, the Australian manufacturing industry. And people are going to have time on their hands. So what can they do to get involved in co-ops and start uh, etching towards this situation of, of realising that if they have time, they have some interests, they have perhaps access to the internet, they can start doing things. Yeah. Well, I think Melina mentioned the get, uh, getmutual.coop uh, as a website for people to go and check. Uh, if you're a vehicle worker, I would push your union to get more involved and build better partnerships with the cooperative sector so that we can campaign and win uh, new cooperative enterprises. I think that's a really key thing. I mean, our union rules call for the socialisation of industry and for 60 years they were largely ignored because that meant... Uh, maybe the Soviet Union and that didn't really seem like a great option. 
But now we've got something here that can be the socialization of industry, which provides people with real freedom uh, and meaningful choice in their lives. Godfrey Most, great to have you on The Renegade Economist. Thanks, Carl. I love listening to your podcast. So this will be strange if I hear it while I'm at the gym or something like that. <laughs> I do wonder where people listen, but thanks for that. We're with Melina Morrison from the Business Council of Cooperatives and Mutuals. She's the CEO and uh, the sponsor of today's conference. So, Melina, uh, fantastic to have you on the show. We've talked a bit about co-ops and this, uh, the question I want to get the bottom of is active membership. How do you decide whether someone's being active or not in the world of co-ops? This is the classic question that a cooperative or mutual needs to ask itself at the very beginning of its existence. Cooperatives are, are doing with and by, not to and for. So the notion of reciprocity is at their core. Active membership is where your responsibility comes in in order to access rights. So it, de it can depend on the sector, the type of cooperative, if you are an agriculture producer, for example, your active membership will be to trade with the cooperative that you're in, which may be the thing that's distributing your goods to a larger market. The active membership test in a roadside mutual is to purchase annual membership of the roadside assistance. Um, the active membership test, if you like, in a credit union is that you continue to have money in that credit union, in that cooperative bank, so that it can do its peer-to-peer -peer lending model. What tends to happen is when the mutual gets very big, the notion, the idea of active membership gets very diluted and watery, and that's when the classic kind of um, disassociation between members and, their, and the mutual they own occurs. And that's something that cooperatives and mutuals have to think long and hard about. How do they engage their members? Well, it should be easier in the online era now to uh, have some sort of uh, system of, of tokens or some way to engage uh, with that level of interaction and, and keep some sort of monitoring in place there. But how does it work at the very basics when there's four, there's five plus of you, you're setting up, and there's that one argumentative person. I call them, uh, they're, they're, they're members of the HFC, the Headfuck Collective. How do you work a way through that situation where you've got that one power monger um, who's destroying the good vibes of the co-op? Look, working with people is difficult. Uh, we live in a democracy. It's like a large cooperative. We put our money in, tax, and then our large democratically elected or mostly democratically elected ele political elite decide where the money goes around. But it's messy and it's because of human nature. I think one of the most important things you can do as a cooperative is have really strong governance. And Janelle at our event today was talking about even changing the way you manage the cooperative. Move away from the hierarchy structure that we're used to, move to polycentricity, as she called it, where you actually are much closer across your um, structure to the, from the members to the management. Perhaps the members are the management. And then you've got to work really hard in terms of classic principles of democratic governance to make sure that power is shared as equitably but also as efficiently as possible. One way that cooperatives create a stronger bond between their members, it, it, we call it stickiness, is economic participation. Like 
really a lot of the time that we're talking about cooperatives, we're, we're shying away from talking about profits or money, but profits are beautiful because in a cooperative, they're distributed back to members in an equitable way. So more surplus, more economic value and social values created out of that. So what you can do to get better governance is actually make the rights and responsibilities of the members very clear. And then the day-to-day -day difficulties of running things as a group, as a, as a membership-owned organisation, can be ameliorated by those structures. Very good. Now, our last question, um, the comparative advantages and you know, a lot of these co-ops will be bootstrapped up where it's really your time and some minimal inputs to get it going. Uh, th there must be tremendous returns for lenders, if you like, and a reduced risk uh, lending to co-ops with that sort of business model in mind. Uh, what sort of efficiency gains are there in the co-op universe? Well, in a classic time of, um, of economic downturn, you really see the efficiency step up. So we saw that during the GFC and the ILO has measured this. If you go online and you Google ILO sustainability of financial cooperatives, you'll see a report which actually found that during the GFC, the agility of mutuals, um, primarily around their ability to tighten their belts quite quickly and say, Look, we don't have a shareholder, a capital interested investor in our, in our mutual. So now what we really need to look at to get through this hard time is what is the minimum operating profit that we can trade on to keep in operation. With that kind of flexibility and that ability to focus down on the core elements of what the mutual needs to develop, you get real business efficiency. Also, when they're customer owned, they're closer to their customers. So they should be able to compete in the market. And if you see credit unions coming top of the league tables in terms of customer satisfaction, you can actually see that happen in the marketplace. Well, let's hope uh, with some of these platform co-ops, we see uh, a viral takeoff of this exciting uh, business organizational outlook. So Melina Morrison, thanks very much. Thank you. He does get something published, he does get something broadcast. It's a Okay, we're with Anthony McMullen from Employee Ownership Australia New Zealand. And Anthony, uh, continuing on the platform co-op uh, line of thinking, if you were setting up a business uh, in the co-op space and you had a number of different uh, businesses you wanted to fit under that umbrella, uh, how would you uh, take some steps forward? I need to ask you a question. So in terms of uh, a group of businesses, would they also be cooperatives? Yes, they would. So um, under the uh, cooperative national law and of course the Victorian law, you can have an association of cooperatives. So cooperatives can join a, a larger cooperative and you need a minimum of two actual cooperatives. If you're setting up a regular cooperative with individual actual natural persons as members, that's a minimum of five. But you can have as little as two actual real cooperatives. One could be distributing, one could be non-distributing, and that could join a sort of a, 
a uh, overall um, cooperative, which could uh, form a sort of a federated structure, shared service model, that kind of thing. So uh, to begin with, do you have to incorporate to be a co-op? Yes, you do. It's illegal to call yourself a cooperative if you're not a registered cooperative. And just give us the legal background to why you should be incorporated. Well, I think, like, it just depends. I mean, you can establish something like a non-incorporated association. Plenty of people do. And you can say, you know, uh, we've got an interest in cooperatives and... and um, that could be something that you start to get people around. But when you get to the point where actually handling money, um, that's when you really do need to think about registering as a cooperative. And if you do register as a cooperative, you've got uh, the opportunity to call yourself a cooperative, to cooperate with other cooperatives, which is one of the cooperative principles. And the legal structure provides you a framework and an opportunity to have member participation. So essentially with cooperatives, all they are is very simply, they're member-owned businesses. And you can have different types of members or you can have multi-stakeholders, so different types of members being part of a cooperative. So you can have employee-owned cooperatives, you can have consumer-owned cooperatives like university bookstores. Any kind of business that you can think of uh, that involves people uh, wanting to make decisions democratically together, because it's one member, one vote, whether that's a cooperative or an actual person, uh, then that's a, a great opportunity to um, do business and do good and care for your community and other cooperative principle. What's, it, what's been the takeaway message for you uh, from today's conference? Packed out with about 500 people. Look, I think the takeaway is that the time is right. I, I've been involved in cooperatives for a number of years. I, I got interested in it, in it as a form of social enterprise. Uh, I like the democratic ethos and I like that it was a little bit more sort of uh, business focused that you could have distributing cooperatives where you can distribute profit to members in an equitable way. I thought that there's an opportunity to get people involved that is can actually provide a sustaining uh, income and uh, for people that get involved but also to give back you know in terms of reciprocity so going to kind of social enterprise conferences I always remember putting up my hand at one of these conferences and talking about cooperatives and then after the conference someone coming up and uh, telling me off uh, just using the word cooperative so times have changed that's lovely and we're sort of making these kind of multinational sort of links with what's happening overseas we can see this wonderful opportunity to learn from each other and people are looking for this kind of different sort of mutual more democratic uh, economy it's back to the 1890s which prosper crew would know about i think you know and uh, it's a way of also looking forward using these new platforms and they just lend themselves to people wanting to make decisions democratically the new kinds of technology allow for you know, massive levels of democracy. The only sort of caveat I'll put on that is that I hope it remains sort of interpersonal, that it's actual people meeting with each other. So like the platform, you know, Meetup actually facilitates people meeting up in real life. It would be sad if some of these platform cooperatives were just people kind of having disembodied debates with each other making decisions. So I think that when we're moving to this new online way of uh, relating and acting democratically, we also need to think about, well, how can we ensure that our own humanity, our whole person, is uh, coming along for the ride with these new forms of enterprise? 
Well, Anthony McMullen, beautifully said. As uh, we have Janelle Orsi, uh, our keynote, one of our keynote speakers here today, uh, a friend of the Renegade Economist from a, a year or two ago. So, Janelle, great you're back in Australia. It's been a couple of visits now. I thought your don't feed the billionaires line today went down very well. Uh, how does that uh, evolve into platform co-ops? Yes, well, I've started to focus quite a bit on platform co-ops lately and well, one of the reasons is I do think people have finally decided we don't want to feed the billionaires anymore and all of the platforms that we use on a regular basis like Uber and Airbnb and Google, they are owned by very wealthy people who are just getting wealthier. And so the alternative is cooperatives. And the great thing about building cooperatives in the realm of technology is just that it's it's much easier than in many other realms where you need a lot of capital to say purchase land or buy other resources. So it's a really ripe area for growth and people can really get organized. And a lot of the value of these platforms is the critical mass of people who are using them. So it's good old style organizing people around building these new models. One of the things in the co-op world is how you decide what a active member is or not. And how would that play out online, do you think? Because that's, that's one of the ways that you qualify to get a share of uh, the co-op's money, isn't it? Yes. So it's really interesting. I, from what I know about the legal model in Australia for cooperatives, you have to actively be participating in the cooperative, meaning you're actively, say, purchasing from the cooperative or working for it. In the United States, we don't have that requirement. So what we have to do is think when we're creating a cooperative, if somebody becomes a member, but they're not purchasing anything from the cooperative, do we still want them to be able to vote? And so that's something we want to grapple with with our platform co-ops. But um, yeah. It's a big one, isn't it? And so you could imagine there'd be some sort of uh, pinging between uh, different membership tokens and things like that would, that would reference uh, automatically how many hours someone's put into working on the back end of a website, those sort of things. There must be a bit of that sort of tinkering coming through. There is, yeah. And with Loconomics, which is the platform cooperative that I've been working with to help convert it to a cooperative, we're having to question how do you take a large number of people in a cooperative potentially and create a governance structure that's participatory but that doesn't get out of hand. And so there are a lot of different ways in which people can participate in governance, but one of them is electing the board and nominating people for the board of directors. But we thought, what if we get a thousand nominations? How do we call them down? And so what we're going to do is find the people for each board seat, the 20 people who are nominated who have the most who have used the platform the most. So it's the people who are truly benefiting and relying on the platform to make their livelihoods. Those are the ones who can ultimately be uh, called down and run. And is there any cross-referencing to particular skill sets that the board might need so that um, there's those sort of skills brought on board as well? You know, what we've decided is that anybody can be on the board and then we'll train them because we don't want to have to end up recruiting people who are like lawyers or financial, you know, accountants or whatever to try to cultivate that expertise. We kind of feel like everyone should have this experience of being on a board of directors. And so when they join the board, they'll go through a financial training or a governance training. I thought that was really fantastic in your speech. You're talking about the localization and how co-ops can be set up uh, in in perpetuity, not for sale. Uh, that was exciting as an aspect. Uh, how's that playing out in the legal framework? 
Well, in the legal framework, it's to be determined because what I've seen of a lot of cooperatives is there's really not much preventing them from selling out if they do decide that they want to sell out to a larger company. And, and most worker-owned businesses in the United States are a different form than a cooperative. They're an employee stock ownership plan, which is designed to sell out. That's how people extract their value back out is selling their shares. And so they're not going to be employee-owned forever. They're going to want to sell to bigger corporations eventually. So having to build into a legal structure something that prevents sale really goes against everyone's common sense, everyone's experience, the whole legal system. But it's something that we have to do because we just have to stop treating everything like a commodity that can be traded. So being based in San Francisco uh, and uh, you know being part of the next generation really stepping into leadership roles now uh, it's something that I've struggled with is the lack of mentorship and online we have this opportunity to capture this wisdom and build on it and I suppose that's what a co-op would do is it would have uh, perhaps a very uh, a wiki kind of operational manual that could be updated by different members and from that uh, whole information flows and distribution systems uh, improved uh, around the clock as we know the internet can uh, deliver. That's a really good idea, yeah, and we're trying as we go to capture the ideas as they come to us because we come up with ideas we think are good and then two months later they're not that great anymore and we've come up with other things, but we need to be documenting the whole process as we go. And I'm, I'm seeing emerging, like the P2P Foundation is providing a lot of that kind of transparency about different projects that are happening and how they're structured, so. Cool, so tell me about the Sustainable Economies Law Center. You've got your seed bank there and defending the role of seed banks in the US. Uh, how's that been going? What are some of the other big things happening in your world? Um, so yeah, we've been working on passing laws to legalize seed libraries, and there are about 300 seed libraries across the United States that feel threatened to be shut down because the laws are designed for big seed companies and require that all seeds be labeled and tested and so on. And seed libraries are just people sharing seeds for free with one another. Um, so we're working on that. We're working on changing securities laws or offering laws to remove barriers or lower barriers to getting people's capital, which is currently in Wall Street, getting it off Wall Street and into local businesses and cooperatives. Uh, and then we're working with just interesting clients, like an agricultural land trust that's trying to get large amounts of agricultural land off the speculative market and into the hands of young farmers and to keep it affordable in the long term. Similarly with housing, working on new models that combine limited equity with cooperative ownership and uh, yeah, so a lot of exciting things. Yeah, well, it's it's always good seeing your e-newsers and uh, knowing that there's a group out there trying to build the legal framework for this emerging commons uh, uh, generation. So uh, what sort of tips can you give people who are just getting into all this? What can they do to, to delve into the waters of understanding the commons and then how that flows through to counter the billions and billions that Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook has? Yeah, well... Just start getting together, whether it's discussion groups, book clubs, workshops. Um, we do at Sustainable Economies Law Center three times a month, we have something called a legal cafe, which is a combination of a discussion or teach-in with a legal advice clinic, with mingling space. So it's just trying to get people together talking about these ideas and because, yeah, we so much left to be learned and discovered in this movement. So, yeah, come together. Well, Janelle Orsi, great to have you back on the show. Thanks so much, Carl. 
So there we have Janelle Orsi from uh, the legendary Sustainable Economies Law Center, SEL, I think it's a theselc.org. Uh, yeah, really blew the conference away. She was fantastic, as always. Now we're on to the next superstar, Professor Nathan Schneider. I'm not sure whether you read Shareable. .net might be the website, but Shareable, the big international peer-to-peer news source, they were raving over this conference he organised last year called Platform Cooperativism and uh, the need to correct these incredible monopoly rents in the internet. So uh, he gave one of the best presentations I've seen in a long time. And uh, yeah, we get a little geeky in this conversation, but yeah, he's uh, presenting this Friday, um, uh, 2 to 5 o'clock, um, uh, the Commons Transition Coalition is presenting sharing value and ownership for the common good, building the Commons economy. So that's at the Church of All Nations, uh, Palmerston Street, Carlton. Check it out online. All right, let's go to the interview. Okay, we're with keynote Nathan Schneider, Professor Schneider. Uh, now, the Internet of Ownership, explain that concept to us. It sounds uh, very Zuckerbergian or anti Zuckerbergian. To me, the idea of the Internet of Ownership, just that term, is um, is about posing the question of who owns the stuff that we rely on, right? And it just says, okay, who controls the Internet? Um, who is it really serving? Is it really serving the people who are contributing to it and using it and relying on it every day? Or is it mainly serving a small group of investors who happen to get in early and happen to have a huge amount of money in order to um, uh, uh, charge these uh, business ideas into monopolies? Uh, the latter is generally the case. Um, the vision of an Internet of Ownership um, is, is something in which ownership is um, distributed through the internet in the same way that use and and um, uh, contribution is distributed through the ownership through the internet, um, and it's a play on this idea of the internet of things, uh, which is um, which is this kind of new phenomenon in the in the uh, internet economy where uh, more and more every little thing from our refrigerators and our uh, toasters and our cars and our locks are being controlled through networks. Um, uh, and those networks are largely passing through these very centralized uh, companies um, for their own sake. Uh, and, and so it's a kind of twist on that, something a little more, um, uh, a, a little, uh, you know, less about a kind of robot apocalypse and more about something that we share, a real sharing economy. Now, the website, internetofownership.net, um, came about after the, um, the conference in New York that Trevor Schultz and I co-organized in November 2015, uh, Platform Cooperativism. And I wanted to find a way to uh, continue the work of just documenting what's out there because you know I'm a reporter and I just found that that was so powerful. Uh, uh, people just needed to see how many others were already working on building more democratic platforms and networks. And um, uh, in some ways that was more powerful than saying this needs to be done, this, this is uh, you know, creating uh, 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 kind of imperatives and, and marching orders just to recognize what's already out there. Uh, so I started working with a group of people around the world who are interested in this stuff uh, to just put it all together um, in a place that we could share um, and it's still a very, very rough prototype, 
um, uh, uh, still just using a, a um, default WordPress theme. Um, uh, we've started putting a few blog posts up um, just to get conversations going. But most of all, it's, it's a database um, that we hope will be uh, shared by the, the um, community of, of platform co-ops um, just to help, um, help us find one another. Um, help users, potential users, find the platforms they might be interested in using, um, and also uh, helping entrepreneurs and platform builders find the resources that might help them, like good legal advice and um, funders who are interested in this sort of thing, uh, and uh, uh, organizations in, in uh, different uh, local regions that are helping to kind of cultivate a community uh, around a fairer internet. Yeah, well, it's 10 years since the World Social Forum movement was uh, really uh, opening up these communities, uh, wanting change in society. And it's been uh, a long time coming for there to be a sort of futurist organization that looks at the cutting edge of what's coming up. Because when we look back in time, it's going to be an absolute tragedy that we've allowed this utility of the internet to be privatized and these uh, huge profits coming through. And maybe you might be the person who, who knows this, but I want to know how VeriSign got the natural monopoly to uh, give the tick of approval to anyone wanting a .com uh, uh, internet domain name. Uh, do you know any of the story there? I know they've been criticised for uh, not paying their taxes of recent. Isn't that rather ironic when uh, they are able to increase the cost of domain uh, registration virtually unchecked? It would be a nice business if you could get it, hey? Well, I think it's a reminder that the internet was not really built to be what it has become, and and it, it you know, and this this extends to many many levels. It includes domain registration, certainly, which is highly centralized and and in all sorts of bizarre ways, but. Um, but I think this extends to so many other things. It extends to uh, uh, the, the way in which security was not built into the, a lot of the original protocols in ways that I think we we found we need it to be. Um, and um, and it, it's an invitation, I think, to um, step back for a moment and think about um, uh, what the internet should look like, how it should be structured. Um, you know, this is a question that people were asking themselves in the 70s and 80s, and it's, it's kind of fun to go back to people like Ted Nelson, early theorists of, of, um, of, the, uh, of the Internet technologies, and see what they were thinking about. And in a lot of cases, it, it was something that looks very different from what came about. And in some cases, it seems more appealing, in some cases less. Um, but but uh, uh, the, the, I, I think too often people... Uh, take the internet and the structure of it and the economy of it as something that's given, something that's uh, just, it is what it is, um, and it can't be any different. Um, in fact, these things can be changed. And I think if we do, if we, if we do approach it with, a, um, uh, with the concerns of justice at the center, we realize that the internet is quite poorly designed in many respects, and especially the monopoly powers that have built up within it um, are, are things that, um, that uh, would not be tolerated even a century ago um, in the industrial context. Uh, it's amazing that we do, that we do today. Um, there was some, something else I wanted to make sure to, to bring up. Oh, yes. You mentioned also the World Social Forum, and I think it's really important um, to draw on the legacies of efforts going back 
um, decades, but but uh, uh, going back decades to to uh, build a kind of new internet in the shell of the old. Um, th th this idea of platform cooperativism is not new if you look at this history and, and a lot of that has come out of uh, social movements trying to use the internet in ways that, that work for them. You know, so part of this is, um, uh, uh, and, and much of that has happened through the World Social Forum processes uh, among other mobilizations. For instance, I'm a member of May 1st PeopleLink, which is a, um, a member-controlled uh, uh, organization that provides internet services. I, I have all of my cloud services hosted there. My websites are host, hosted there. That means my contacts and my calendars and, and my file sharing and, um, and all this sort of stuff. And um, you know, I know the people who administer it. We're friends. You know, we we uh, when I have a problem, I know who who to call, and we we talk it through. And it's the sort of thing you could never experience with with Gmail and and uh, Dropbox, and and. I really encourage people to, to look for these kinds of services. Uh, May First People Link came out of some of these uh, uh, social forum processes, but there, there are a lot of other services like this. And when you do use this kind of thing, like using a credit union, you experience a different kind of, um, uh, of online life. You know, you experience one that that is really accountable to you. You feel that accountability. You know, you see how the thing works for you um, and for the communities that you're trying to build uh, rather than uh, uh, just kind of throwing things into some anonymous cloud. Uh, and, and I think that is part of what uh, can draw people into another, into an alternative. It's just that, that recognition um, through these little alternatives that have been built over the years uh, uh, that another kind of internet is possible uh, and that actually it, it feels good and it's fun and it enables you to do stuff that you couldn't otherwise do. Last question. I love uh, I love CVCRM as an open source uh, database management system and uh, I'm not quite sure whether they're co-ops but they've got over 10,000 members now and it's part of the open source movement that's been developing online how is the evolution of co-ops and this ownership of, of community infrastructure developing through the open source community? There's a really strong affinity between this idea of platform cooperativism and, and open source, but there are some differences, and I think they're really interesting and really important. Um, you know, one problem that the open source world has had, you know, and I say this as somebody who, you know, I run Linux on my computer, I, I use almost entirely open source tools everywhere I can, um, not just because I'm an ideologue, but because I love the tools and I'm, I'm part of the communities that, that produce them. Uh, but, um, but those communities have been um, not nearly as inclusive as they should be. Um, when you look at the demographics of open source developers in the U.S., for instance, way more male and white and affluent than even just the demographics of developers of software in general, right? And that's already a big problem, right? And and the beneficiaries of, of the open source movement have in many cases been the big extractive companies that also often happen to sit on the boards of the foundations that steer the development of these tools. You know, you take something like Linux, a, a, a very powerful operating system that runs most of the internet um, and, as well as my computer, and it's created by a community, it's free and open for anybody to use. 
Um, and, and in many ways, it exemplifies cooperative practice. The, the, De the Debian Constitution, which is one of the main governing bodies of, of Linux distributions, is a, a beautiful example of decentralized self-governance among, um, uh, you know, over, a, over an online platform. Um, but one of the major beneficiaries of, of, of the Linux community also has been Google through its use of Android which is the most sophisticated consumer surveillance tool ever invented, right? It, it, it takes advantage of this open source tool and enables one company to profit enormously um, through its uh, undisclosed use of our personal information. And I, I think platform cooperativism uh, uh, calls us to challenge some of the shortcomings of the open source and free software movements so far. It says, how do we make sure that we build a layer of economic justice um, and, and you know, true privacy and control into the tools that we build? Um, one example of this, and, and I don't think we know quite how to solve that problem, but one example, for instance, is um, the peer production license, which has been advocated by Dimitri Kleiner and the Peer to Peer Foundation. And they suggest that, in a, that an additional layer could be put on commons-based licenses that would only allow, for instance, cooperatives to, to, to uh, commercialize a given piece of intellectual property. So, you know, I write some code. Um, rather than just sharing it to anybody who could possibly use it, um, I could say I'm sharing it to, to everybody, but only cooperatives can commercialize it. So you make sure that the, the fruits of that of that information commons are are um, uh, are really uh, 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 going to enterprises that are um, that are managed democratically and that are sharing uh, the value produced in democratic fashion. I don't know that that's the right answer for everything, but I think that platform cooperativism invites us to start asking these questions about ownership and governance that we haven't been asking, to, to bring in the same um, degree of creativity that has gone into hacking intellectual property in the open source community um, and apply it to um, corporate governance and corporate ownership um, that so far has been allowed to, to re remain in an um, extremely extractive um, outdated 20th century industrial model. Beautiful way to finish. Thanks very much, Professor Schneider. And I wish you all the luck because we so need a group that are futurists looking at the cutting edge of what's coming through on the internet and making sure that that commons is protected for everyone. Uh, it's, it's a crazy world out there and too many uh, pirates are making easy money. But uh, well done. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much. And that was Professor Nathan Schneider. Find him on Twitter at Nathan's Airplane. Uh, more details on the show notes uh, for this week at earthsharing.org.au. Uh, be prepared uh, to dig deep for 3CR, celebrating our 40th year on air. Next week is uh, the Renegades radio show. And uh, coming up, we have Raising Our Voices. Uh, so please uh, support uh, the public airwaves, support uh, independent media. Uh, my name's Carl Fitzgerald. I look forward to being with you uh, this time and next week. The reason why we had to have a program on 3CR was because of the failure uh, of other radio stations, so-called independent radio stations, which were not letting us have our say. It's up to you to keep independent voices on air. 
Donate now to 3CR's 40th birthday, Radical Radiothon. 3CR was giving us the opportunity to tell our story as it was, and I wouldn't be exaggerating if I say...